You have clients who have companies who have goals and you're helping them assemble the high performance team that achieves those goals. That's it. That's what we do. Nobody should get confused. Like if they think about it in terms of why make placements, no, you don't because that's a transaction and that's not one that's going to get to repeat itself. Welcome to the Resilient Recruiter Podcast. This is your host, Mark Whitby, and my special guest this week is Chris Shuttlecotti. I actually recorded this interview months ago, but we had technical problems that delayed the publication. I'm excited to finally be able to share this conversation with you because I just know you're really going to enjoy it. Chris is the president and founder of Manhattan Resources, an executive search firm based in Houston. Chris has been incredibly successful in the search business. He's one of the top recruiters in the United States. His best year, he built $2.3 million in personal production while also managing a team. In this episode, you'll understand what it really takes to perform at that level. Chris reveals his value proposition, and he shares his process for winning new business. Plus, we have a detailed discussion about transitioning from contingency search to retained. In fact, You'll hear Chris and I deliver an impromptu training session on how to pitch exclusivity. Before we dive in, I have a quick announcement. I'm really excited that we've attracted our first podcast sponsor. We're really proud to have partnered with iIntro. iIntro is a recruitment platform that helps you to differentiate your service from the competition and win more business on a retained basis iIntro support goes towards the cost of producing this show so we can continue bringing you this free, high-quality content. So without further ado, here's my interview with Chris Shuttlecotti. I started this company almost 22 years ago. Okay. And it's been an adventure from day one. I mean, we, you know, we, we opened October 11th. We did our first deal in eight days. I was 100% sure everybody in the world could have done this. This was super easy. And then... <laughs> We didn't do another deal for like four months. And I, wow. and so there was this immediate success, immediate failure, figure it out and then roll for 20 years. And that's kind of what happened. Um, but it was amazing. Yeah, it was, it was hysterical. I mean, we would get the office at seven, we'd go to dinner at five, we'd be back at the office at six 30. We'd make calls till nine, you know, I mean, it was like, we're going to build it. Like it has to go. And so, you know, I, I just, but I laugh at the, at the pace that we, I don't know, put into learning, I guess. Tell me about those early days because you had uh, been an executive with some major corporations yeah. and then started your own search firm, but without yeah, having worked of, in that business before, that seems like a kind of crazy thing to do. How did you learn the search business in that, or in the yeah. early, early days? Well, it probably goes back to my experience in corporate America. So my last role, um, so I started off with, you know, big companies, Union Pacific and, and was, you know, they promoted me, they sent me to business school, they invested time and effort and treasure in me. And at the end of the day, the culture of UP was not, we're going to put a 20 something in charge of a full P&L. You know, they weren't, they give me the sales side to lead. They'll give me the operations side to lead, but they're not going to give me, um, you know, the full deal. And so my boss, you know, he, I think at one point he just looked at me and he said, you know, Chris, everybody that reports to you already is old enough to be your dad. You're <laughs> going to have to, you know, you're probably gonna have to get some gray hair before much else happens. And so, um, you know, he was basically telling me that UP is not a meritocracy. And that's a really important word in my life because, right. 
as an athlete and, and a young kid, I wanted to play sports at the highest level as soon as possible. And so that meant whether you're good enough or mature enough or, you know, whatever, you, you have to be well put together to pull that off. And um, so I started looking for an opportunity that would be, you know, um, more of a meritocracy kind of competitive situation. And for me, that was um, private equity. So I got involved in the private equity business, which is all about getting it done. They certainly don't care how old you are. They care, can you get whatever the deal is done or can you integrate this piece into the mother, you know, the business if you're doing a roll up. So we brought 84 companies. Um, I was involved in the integration of those businesses, not the choice of what we bought or how much we paid for it. Um, so I was running pieces of it at a time. And as, uh, as leaders that we had, you know, like we bought your company, we paid you X amount of money. We gave you 80% up front, 20% you have an earn out. Well, when you went to the beach, right, when you got your last check, you might retire or you might just go do something else, right? You maybe didn't want to report to 30 year old Chris, right? That's high, highly likely, right? So I would have to run that business till I found someone else to run it. So I'd hire a search firm. I didn't think the value proposition was very good. I didn't think that most of the headhunters that we used understood our business, didn't understand the positions, didn't understand the people they were submitting. Um, there just wasn't a lot of value for the millions of dollars we were spending to, in the search industry. So I went to my CEO and he said, it didn't matter. He said, you know, we're going to sell this. We need to have leaders in place, but he wasn't real concerned with whether those leaders were going to be there four or five years from now and adding value continuously because that wasn't our goal, right? It was to sell it and mm -hmm. kind of messed with my Midwestern sensitivities. I'm, you know, I'm a guy from the Midwest and I kind of think you do it right the first time and yeah. just how I'm wired. So when we sold the business, uh, he, that same CEO came to me and said, well, Chris, good news, bad news, change of control. Your options are going to vest. You're going to get a check, but they're going to, they're going to fire you. And I was like, well, they're going to fire you, sir. And he says, Oh, absolutely. They're going to fire me. And he's smiling ear to ear for me. I was a young guy. I didn't, I still wanted to work. And so, um, he just said, Hey, listen, they're not taking the leadership team, Chris. They're, they're taking the business. So I had to decide what I was going to do next. And I started brainstorming a little bit. And when I got to executive search, I thought there's got to be a better mousetrap. There's got to be a better value proposition for the client and probably for the candidate, you know, just so that they, they feel like um, someone's taking a genuine interest in their career. Someone's taking a genuine interest in their, in the client's business. It takes time to get to know it. And there's a lot of things that go into that, but, but that was my mission day one. So I, you know, I sat down, wrote a business plan, took a bunch of people to lunch that I went to business school with and challenged them to beat it up. And Manhattan resources was born on October 11th of 1999. And we did, I don't know, a million one our first year and kept on going. So, wow. That's a great that's story. How it happened. And the why is really around just trying to build high performance teams for a roll up business that we were, you know, building as we went, you know, kind of East to West across the United States. Wow. Interesting. Really cool. I'd like to dive into this subject of value proposition for clients and candidates in a second. Yeah. What you experienced on the other side when you were dealing with um, search firms is you weren't that impressed and you thought you could do it better. 
Um, so when it came to founding Manhattan Resources, what were some of the things that you instituted from the beginning that you thought, this is yeah. how we're going to do things to make sure that we're different, that we're superior? And then what are the things that have kind of just evolved over time that have yeah. uh, been added to your value proposition? Yeah. So, so the first thing was, is that we started off again, it's oil and gas, energy, petrochemicals. So, okay. and we're based in Houston. So 90% of our client base initially was here. So there was no reason not to go visit and spend some time with the client. There was no reason not to have the local candidate base in front of me physically interviewing. All right. So um, there, there was no Zoom in 1999. Right. So, you know, there was no Teams meetings in 1999. So, you know, whether that, was, that meeting might take place in our offices, that might, meeting might take place in a hotel, that meeting might, might take place in a restaurant. But what was going to happen was I was going to, or someone on my staff was going to sit down with you in a prepared way and interview you face to face after spending time with the client. Um, I felt like since my frustration was that I didn't think the headhunters understood our business when I was in private equity, then my responsibility was to go learn the client's business. And when you learn the business, it's not just, and maybe being in private equity made it easier because I was, we were looking at so many different businesses all the time, getting to know a business was part of what you did. Mm. So that was, it was sort of built in my DNA to begin with. But, but I think the important piece of that is that if I could get excited and understand the business, then I could transfer that and communicate that well to the candidate. And if I understood or took the time to understand the culture of that business, then I was better able to put not just the shortstop on your team, but the right shortstop that was going to add value in the locker room, make the third baseman better. You know, those kind of analogies around just making people better around you, but you can't do it if you don't spend time with the client. Well, so then what evolved? Well, so some other things. So we don't just send a resume. We send, now these are things that have evolved. Um, initially, I think because I didn't know any better, I would send a resume and a paragraph explaining why the person was, suited for the role. Pretty basic stuff. Um, that evolved greatly into, we do a, an exhaustive sort of like almost a baseball card of who the person is, um, where they went to school. We verify they have the degrees they claim to have. We, we even cover compensation in a unique way to make sure that we don't um, mislead the client or give the candidate an opportunity to mislead the client on where their compensation is. We're very thoughtful about how we handle that piece of it. We do a functional interview. We do a cultural interview. We do a gap analysis. So we don't just tell you why he's great or she's great. We tell you, well, here are some concerns that came up in our interview process and you need to dig into these issues, Mr. Client, as you go through the interview to determine if these are coachable, trainable, or deal breakers in your hiring process. We do a skills assessment. So when you get a job description and the candidate says, or the client says, hey, here's the seven or eight bullets that, or however many, that, that we find are important for this role, we're going to not just tell you that they have that experience. We're going to tell you where they got it. So in their 20-year career, whatever their expanse of their career is, and whatever uh, positions and companies they work for, 
we're going to outline for you exactly where they got those bullets covered so that as you're doing the interview, because we're supposed to be professional interviewers, if the client's not, or oftentimes isn't, yeah. right? So it's not a criticism as much as it is part of the service is us walking the client through how best to get comfortable with why this person made it to them, right? So, so we do that. Um, and then there's a summary and the summary at Manhattan Resources is one sentence. It's the same sentence. Now it didn't used to be, that's evolution too. It used to be people could write whatever they wanted as a summary and it was usually, to me, it was weak. So I said to the team, I said, I only want one sentence there, but you better mean it when you write it. And that is, Manhattan Resources highly recommends John Doe for the position of whatever, wherever. And if you write that, that's your commitment that you believe what you're saying in the rest of this report because you've already told the client everything else, but you're signing your name that you mean this. So if you wouldn't hire them, if you're like, nah, that's the wrong person. So there's a commitment level to the client's success that has evolved over time, but really been there since day one, just how we go about it. It's a little bit different. Um, the business has expanded geography wise, and I'm probably droning on a little bit here, but, but we now, if we write a search, we get on a plane, we go visit the client, period. There's not a time where the client says, Hey, you're in Houston, I'm in New Jersey and we want to hire you. You don't need to come. Oh, yes, we do. So we're going to get on a plane. We're going to fly to New Jersey. We're going to get a hotel. We're going to spend a couple days in your office. I want to interview all the stakeholders involved in this position. And then I'm going to, at the end of this, before I get back on a plane, I'm going to go to whoever the primary stakeholder is, whether it's the president of the company or the regional vice president or whoever I'm doing the work for. And I'm going to say, this is what I know. And I want him or her to tell me, wow, you really got a handle on this. Or wait a minute, let me redirect you a little bit. But, but to me, if you start there, one, you have a much tighter relationship with your client. Two, you've invested some time in getting to know them and it never leads to one search because they're not going somewhere else after they invest two days getting to know your firm and your firm getting to know them. If you're not just an, a voice on the other end of the phone or a face on the other end of a Zoom, well, that's Chris. Like, I mean, we're we're past that. So, sorry for right. the yeah. Gen No, no, it's, it's fantastic. Um, and that explains how you've got such a high level of repeat business. 90, I think you said 95% yeah, or something. Nine, it's at least 95%. It could have been higher. I was just like, well, I'm trying to think of anybody that's used us once and not come back. I mean, it, it, there's, too, there's too much invested you know, I mean, and it's not really, if you really think about it, right. If I'm going to the Midwest and I'm in Houston, it's going to cost me $600 for a plane ticket. I really don't care where you send me. It, it might be four, it might be eight, but it's going to cost me $600 for a plane ticket. And it's going to cost me a hundred dollars for a hotel room or $150. I mean, you know, you, you, maybe you have a thousand dollars wrapped up in, you know, hard costs here. And I think that scares people a little bit, but you're not investing to get one search. You're investing to build a relationship with a client and help them succeed by helping them build a high performance team. Well, if that's your goal, that thousand dollars, I mean, as an owner, we pay lots of money in draws and salaries and commissions and 401ks and profit sharing and benefits. 
and all these other things. And how about just having the technology to, to do what we're doing now, right? You got to be able to invest a little bit into long-term relationships with clients. Chris, let me uh, counter that. I don't think it's a cost that puts people off. It's the time and the worry of what if I spend a day or two traveling to meet the client and either A, we're not compatible mm-hmm. or, 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 and we don't want to work with them or B, they give the search to someone else. I think that's the, the perceived risk is I could spend half a week and have nothing to show for it. I could have been doing something else. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, it's, it's a great, it's a great question, but I, so I, maybe this is an important thing. When Manhattan resources started in 1999, mm-hmm. we were a contingent search firm because I didn't know any better. Mm-hmm. And because I didn't understand at the time, the differences between contingent and retained. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, there was no way for me to know cause I'd never done this for anybody else. So, so for us, we, we looked at it and said, okay, in the industry, 12.5% of contingent searches are closed, are closed. I mean, right. it's a terrible hit rate. Horrendous, okay? yeah. So in a $20 billion situation, you know, and that number's probably low now, maybe it's $25 billion, whatever, the, whatever the, the, you know, the market number is, but the percentage is just horribly low. And our hit rate was 31%. And I think most of that was just because I was a bit of a zealot about making sure we wrote good job orders. So you can do better than the 12%, but you have to remember the bar to get in our industry is really low. Anybody can claim to do what we do. Mm -hmm. Um, That doesn't mean that they're going to be good at it. And it doesn't mean they're going to have solid practices, but it is what it is. Um, For us, when I get on a plane and I fly to, I don't know, let's say I fly to Kansas and I go meet with a client. I'm probably also going to set up a couple additional meetings, but I'm going to make sure that I'm smart enough to not write searches that shouldn't be written because I'd rather spend a thousand dollars on a trip that leads to, you know what, there's probably not a good fit here and we should walk away because the alternative is you write a search you charge them a fee, right? And engage a uh, retainer, right? And then you spend two months frustrating yourself on why, on all the things you knew weren't aligned in the first place, right? Well, you can't get your time back. And that thousand is the least of your trouble, right? So, so I will tell you that after doing this, we went fully retained in about 2000, my desk went fully retained in 08. Um, the entire firm hasn't written a contingent search since probably 2010. Um, so at least a decade since we've written anything that wasn't full, you know, a, a retained search. And maybe the, you know, I might be off by a year, maybe it was 09, but, um, but it, was, it was really a very simple math problem. We, we don't, if you think about, and I, you know, I don't know how many people watching this will be owners versus recruiters, but I think they should all hear this. If you, the money in this business, if you're trying to earn a living is on the sales side, because yes. I can leverage my time so much more effectively selling searches than I could ever do filling searches. It doesn't mean you can't make a nice living filling searches. What it does mean 
is that at some point, if all the searches on your desk are retained and your clients are all dead serious, you run into a capacity problem called 24 hours in a day. But there is no capacity issue on how many Chris can sell. So you have to have a qualified team to fill those searches. But if you're getting into this business, you got to say to yourself, okay, what's my time worth? Do I want my business development or salesperson who's bringing me searches, if you're a recruiter, if you're just doing that side of the desk, to, to bring me high quality searches where we are very engaged with the client? Or do I want to say, I mean, if you said to Chris, if you said to me, hey, Chris, how fast can you sell 100 contingent searches? I would tell you I could sell 100 contingent searches in six weeks. Max, maybe less. I might be, I might be able to do it in a day. Because, <laughs> well, think about this. If I call the typical players that have enormous amounts of contingent searches, and I say, hey, listen, you've got 75 things on your website, and they're all contingent, and you just need them filled right? I'd like Manhattan Resources to have the opportunity to fill all 75 of them. That's one conversation, right? Right. But yeah. I'm also competing with everyone else that wants to fill those searches. And I don't actually know how committed the hiring authority is to okay. filling any one of those searches. Right. But if you write me a check for nobody's writing a check in this world for $15,000, $20,000 to get started and not serious about filling that position. It's been approved headcount wise. They know there's another bill coming. They know they've got to return our calls and give us feedback on our candidates. They, they understand that I'm going to get on a plane and come visit them and, or, or someone on my staff um, and spend time and get to know their business. And so, so I, I think right. that's the, that's the probably too long an answer, but that's the, that's the answer. I did a poll on LinkedIn recently to find out what fee percentage recruiters charge, and it confirmed what I'd learned from speaking with so many recruiters every day. The majority of recruiters are undervaluing their service and cutting their fees to become more competitive. Listen, if you want to protect your cash flow and build reserves to protect your business against whatever might happen in the future, you need to be earning more for each placement, not less. The challenge, of course, is how to increase your fees and still be competitive. iIntro has helped hundreds of recruiters to make small but critical adjustments to the way they pitch and win business so they can win more clients who are also willing to pay higher fees. For example, one of their clients typically earned £5,000 per placement. But just a few weeks after working with iIntro, she won a new piece of business on a retainer. So in other words, she got a deposit and her fee was an incredible £20,000, four times her average. If you'd like to see how iIntro can help you to grow your recruitment business and increase your average fees, just go to recruitmentcoach.com forward slash retained and book a free consultation. There's no obligation, and if you mention that you're a listener of the Resilient Recruiter podcast, iIntro have pledged to offer you a 25% discount off any of their services. Just go to recruitmentcoach.com forward slash retained to get started. Okay, so I'd like to get into the retained versus contingent a little bit more. But first, um, so have you ever done that where you've flown out to see someone and and then decided, do you know what? We're not the right firm for you or this isn't something that we're going to be able to help you with. That's that's happened both ways. Um, Where... I've gotten on a plane and had to sit across from 
the leader and say exactly those words um, and explain why, because he's now spent a day, day and a half, letting me crawl around his business, right? Mm -hmm. Getting to know the stakeholders and walking around and seeing the facilities and all of it. Um, and it's happened where um, the client ultimately decides that they want to go a another direction, whether that's with another retained firm or a contingent firm or they just aren't even sure they necessarily want to fill it. Um, so all of those options have happened in 20 years for sure. Yeah. Um, if you asked me how often it happens, super rare because um, now it does happen sometimes where the client and I, or the client and somebody on my team will get together. There's a meeting, there's all those discussions take place and it gets a no initially. And 90 days later, they call us back and say, now it's time to go. I, we, we tried, you know, we, I'll be honest, Chris, you know, we tried to hire, you know, a couple of different firms through our HR contacts and it really, it just hasn't gotten us what we wanted. Um, would you be willing to come back in? And then my answer is sure. But since you've gone out to the market and, you know, made a lot of noise, right. I need, I need, you need to hand me all the work product and let me sort through it and clean it up. Right. Cause there's probably people you chased. You didn't actually get to, there's probably people, you know, I just, I just want to make sure that I'm not spinning my wheels. Let, just give me the mess and I'll clean yeah. it up. Right. And they usually <laughs> are more than happy to, right. to say, Oh my God, thank you. And here you go. So, yep, that happens. Awesome. Yep, but not, I mean, not a lot. I, I, I would suggest that it's not material enough, not to give what the model I'm suggesting, at least a hard look, you know, totally right. I, I think it would be um, an established firm that, that has uh, some, some recruiting experience Mm -hmm. um, would find this to be an, a relatively easy transition. And I transitioned our existing contingent clients to a retained model, which is interesting. So people have asked me a lot of times, how do you do that? And I said, well, when you're doing contingent search for a client, you typically have a bunch of stuff that didn't happen, right? Since it's mm -hmm. the hit rates are lower, right? The close rates are lower. I remember walking into a guy's office and I just, I mean, I would do it all the time, I would just take all the files for that client that we ever did, and each file represented a search. And I remember going into that CFO's office and saying, you know, I need to start to charge you a retainer. And he thought I was crazy, of course, right? He's like, why would I do that? I don't pay you one now. Why would I start paying you one? And I dumped this pile on his desk. And I said, this is the, all the searches we've worked on that you didn't actually ever hire. And he kind of looked at it and he goes, well, what does that mean to me? And I said, mm, there's probably, I don't know, 45 or 50 hours of interviews done by your personnel on people for searches you didn't even. And he goes, no, oh, that's not true. There's no way we would ever do that. And I said, okay, well, and I opened one of them and I said, well, let's look at this one. And he goes, I never approved that headcount. I said, exactly. In the contingent world, your people don't need your approval. They can kick the tires, call a search firm, say, find me the best VP of marketing. And if they find, if the search firm gives them somebody they want, then they can come in and decide to have the argument with you. And if you say, you might just offhand say, no, we're not doing that right now. And they have to turn around and walk out. We've already spent 
you know, I, you know, we might've spent a month on that or two months on that. And your people might've done six interviews already. But the only thing that matters is whether you're going to approve the position and they're not going to bother to have the fight till they have a guy in their hand. And so it, once he figured out that he didn't really have control of what was going on, you know, then he was like, you're telling me that all these searches were somebody called your office and got you started. Yes, sir. I am. And they, they clients don't under, they don't know, but all their people, they don't know how exactly. No, they don't, they don't know how that actually works. And so, yeah. so yeah, once you start showing people the, the wasted time that goes into, you know, searches that weren't approved or never filled or not even well thought out, um, senior leadership usually, and they're like, well, so what are we talking about? And I'm like, I mean, does it matter? I mean, if I, if the guy writes me a, it does, it does matter. I want to be clear about that. If you write me a $2,000 engagement fee, that's easy to not care about, right? There is True. a number where it starts to twi- tweak them a little bit. I used to make the comment, if they wrote you a check for 500 bucks, they wanted value for it. But in today's world, that's not exactly true. There, there's, you know, somewhere in the, and every client's probably a little different, but you start hitting $5,000 and more, people start to go, hey, we got to get something for that $5,000. So they're going to return your calls. But if they're paying 20, they're returning your calls immediately. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it's just absolutely. A, and you might have to move your business slowly from zero to five to nine to 14, yeah. you know, whatever. But yeah. I, I think having a commit, a financially committed search, this is, I mean, it's a, it's just a fact that the client typically responds more efficiently. Um, and your candidate pool does too. Um, yes. If I tell somebody I've been retained by my client to fill this search, I'm the only person in the world that's got it. Right. And if you call my client directly, they're just going to turn around and send you to me. Right. That's a very different, I mean, they, they don't feel like they're taking as much of a risk of putting themselves out there. Right. Getting their resume, emailing it to somebody they don't know. I mean, I joke all the time that a really good headhunter is kind of like your parish priest. You know, <laughs> he, he knows a tremendous amount. He or she knows a tremendous amount yeah. about people because think how fast people open up. Right. We're going to talk about what your motivators are, what your family situation is. I don't have to ask that question. I can ask six questions around it and someone will immediately dive into what, what, what their spouse's work situation is, health issues in the family, how much they owe on their house. Are they willing to relocate? Do they have a high school junior? I mean, all of these things that happen so fast um, with somebody they've never met. You know, I mean, even if it's like this, it's still very um, probably unnerving sometimes for the candidate if, you know, if, if they're do- if they're having these kind of conversations. So for sure. I mean, no question, both the client and the candidate treat the whole process a lot more seriously and your their perception of you as well as a retained recruiter is different. They um are more likely to listen to you, to take your advice, to return your calls, to, um, you know, or even to chase you instead of you having to chase them up for feedback and, and yeah, so on. Yeah, I want to I share one other thing, though, about this. Yeah. And that is that I don't think the contingent model is bad. And I certainly don't think that contingent uh, recruiters create the problem. I think, I think most of the time when I look at the model, you know, the client doesn't have any skin in the game 
And so the client doesn't have a problem asking Chris to do the search and someone else to do the search and someone else to do the search. And then what happens is if all three of those people are earnest and want to go to work, they start making phone call, you know, they do the research, build their call list, decide which direction they're going, they get on the phone. But if they're really working hard, they're going to run into the same people, some of the same people, at least one or two of the same people in a matter of days. So now what happens is you've got three headhunters have all called Bob and Bob has said, well, we, you know, you're the second guy to call me this week. You're the third guy to call me this week about that. What happens based on human nature then? What happens is nobody's vetting the candidate because now what's happened is, is the client has made it a race. Yes. So now it's about owning the paper, not doing what's best in your client's best interest. So your client set up a model that means, hey, the recruiters aren't vetting, they're just sending. And so when you hear somebody say, well, yeah, the recruiters just paper my office. Well, they might, but that's largely because of the way you set up the game. They're trying to make a commission and you made it a race. So what's gonna get lost? Quality, yes. right? So it's not, they're not taking the time to say, if I'm gonna interview Susie for two and a half hours to make sure she's a rock star, and the next guy is going to just send the paper over because Susie's got a couple of decent employer employers and some keywords. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm all right. All I'm doing is giving a reference to the other guy's candidate because by the time I get done interviewing her for two and a half hours and send her over, they're like, Hey, we got her resume from John Doe yeah. over here. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So I think that's really the problem. I don't blame the recruitment world for it because I think human nature takes over. And so, if you just look at that part of it, I, I really think the client largely creates um, the miss. And then, of course, you start looking at retention rates for continued search, and they're much lower. And all, But I think it all goes back to the fact that when you make it a race, the vetting process gets thrown away. That's um, true. But the, the recruiter has the choice here whether to participate in that race scenario or whether to say, do you know what? Um, that I don't believe that serves either of our, our interests. I don't think you're going to get the best outcome, and I um, we don't we don't work that way. Because you're suggesting that it should be exclusive, or that you shouldn't just work. Uh, well, yeah, that's a it's a great question. I mean, so I see there's a ladder of commitment, and your optimum is you get fully retained. Um, the, the next level down is there's an engagement fee and it's two stages instead of three. Next level down is you've got it totally exclusive and, you know, pre-booked access to the client's calendar. So, you you know, uh, you're, you're definitely getting your recommended candidates uh, looked at by the client and so on. And, you know, we're going to aim for as much commitment as possible. But because there's a, there's a second scenario, Chris, the first scenario where three recruiters and they all go to work and then there's a race, but there's an equally likely scenario, number two, where the smart recruiters go, well, hang on a second. I, I've got a one in three chance of getting paid for my work. So I'm going to do the minimum here. I'm going to go to the most obvious, most visible candidates, You know, check my database or my immediate network, fire over a couple of resumes and then move on. So what I used to say to clients when I was running a desk is, um, look, do you want three recruiter? Each recruiter that you've assigned this to has a one in three chance of getting paid 
and a two thirds likelihood that they're going to be wasting their time. So would you rather have three half-hearted recruiters who are, you know, doing, you know, playing the odds and, and doing something, but probably not giving it this full effort and putting their full resources and commitment behind it? Or do you want one devoted recruiter who is getting to know your business and who is going to really go full tilt here to get the outcome because they are pledging that they're going to do so. They're taking responsibility for getting this done for you. And if they don't do it, no one else will. So they have to deliver. You know, there's, there's, if you are signing three different recruiters, who's responsible, who's accountable for getting that done? Yeah. Nobody. Yeah. No, I, I, I think your scenario is, is well set as well laid out. Um, I have a, I actually have a, in the, when I go out and visit with a client for the first time, I actually have a um, recruitment model diagram that I show them. I literally walk them through, here's what a staffing firm looks like. Here's what, you know, the top four search firms in the world service looks like and the pricing and money and differences between them. And then I really present Manhattan resources as a mid-market solution to this because you know, when I read some of those um, agreements on for those top four firms, oftentimes su- the success of filling the search isn't even part of whether or not they get paid. It's right. simply a timeline. Yes. So you're going to pay a third, a third, and a third, whether the job's filled or not. Yeah. Um, and we stop short of that. Um, mm-hmm. So your last payment with us is the deals, like they're there, right? Mm-hmm. They're in their seat. Um, so that, that I'm a little old school on, I haven't figured out, I just wouldn't become my, again, maybe it's my Midwestern sensitivities. I don't know, but I just, I'm not going to charge you that final bill if you don't have that person there and we don't time out. Now there are, that means that you still have to vet your client because, um, sometimes, you know, if you were to say, okay, Chris, how long should one of these searches take? I can tell you what our average is, I can tell you how we've moved that average. Um, and I can tell you that there's still searches that can go 2x the average. Um, and those are unprofitable. Right. They're just unprofitable. I, does, I don't care how big the search is. It doesn't make any difference. Um, when you have a client that doesn't know what they want or continues to move the target around because they start, they, they thought they knew, they were compelling when they laid it out, but as the search evolved and they started talking to people and they started looking at their business and what they were really willing to give up because usually when that happens, it's a new position in the company that they've never had before. And there's an owner or a senior person who's going to be cutting a piece of their responsibility out and shepherding that to this new person so that the company can continue to grow and, and develop. And so that's, that's when the red flags go off for me, right? When it's new and I'm like, okay, and I, then I just bring it up right away. You know, like, hey, are you really sure you want to give up sales responsibility or engineering responsibility or whatever it is that they decide they're, they're going to, you know, kind of cookie cutter out of this person's area of accountability? Interesting. Chris, can I ask you uh, a few interesting things that came up earlier that I wanted to just drill down on a little bit? One is how much pre-qualification are you doing before you or your team member are jumping on a plane you know, to, to figure out, is this even worth going and talking to the, to the customer? Yeah. 
So we, we take every search that we complete gets turned into a presentation because we do the same process every time. Yeah. So you have to imagine I've got a file cabinet full of these um, spiral bound presentations that literally walk you from soup to nuts, every search. And then we have the electronic version of the exact same document, right? So if I'm talking to a customer in Atlanta, so here's an example, this is real, it just happened not very long ago. Um, during COVID, uh, never worked with this client before. Um, they were referred to us by a psychometric testing company. So um, we have some clients that like to use a very specific evaluation tool. The consultants that work for that evaluation company um, have gotten to know us over the years. And one of their consultants told one of her clients, you know what, if you're looking for some help in this area, you should call Chris and his team at Manhattan. So that's how the conversation started. So they reached out to us. Didn't mean they wanted to hire us, just meant, and they'd never done this before. So they were, you know, walking carefully. <clears throat> I sent them a copy of the electronic presentation of, of a search. I sent them a reference list. Um, and then we did a Teams meeting, exactly like, you know, a Zoom meeting, just like this. And I shared my screen and I walk them through exactly what we do. And I said, I can send you as many of these as you'd like to, to look at. I can send you any client, a reference from any client I have, doesn't matter. Okay, so I can give you a list of references. But if you say, well, Chris, I don't want somebody on your list. I want somebody, send me 50 different companies and I'll pick one. Fine, don't, doesn't matter, right? So, and I encourage them to call our clients. They're repeat customers. I, it, yes. it's, the best thing in the world for me is if one of my prospective clients picks up the phone and calls a couple people that have worked with us for years, mm -hmm. it's game over. But right. But, but usually once I've walked you through the process, the, sometimes the prospect will say, you know, for this level position, we don't think we need to go this far. That could mean literally he meant what he said, or he could mean that's too expensive, or he could mean I don't want to invest that much time in this, um, or that, or I just, that's just, you know, whatever. So that's fine, right? And now I'm not getting on a plane going anywhere. I very graciously tell them, you know what? I wish you the best. If you, I, I will check in with you periodically to see how your search goes. Um, I sometimes get the business, like I said, 30, 60, 90 days later um, when it hasn't worked out. Um, and then other times they're like, you know what, Chris, are you serious? You'll get on a plane and come see us. I mean, I don't bill you for my time, but I am going to bill you for my flight. And maybe I didn't bring that part up earlier, but mm. I'm not, I'll pay for it. Like, you know, I'm going to schedule my flight. I'm going to schedule my hotel, but I'm going to, if you hire me, mm -hmm. I'm going to send you a bill for the flight and the hotel and probably not the yeah. dinner I take you to, right. right? Because ultimately I'm probably going to have dinner with the client and I'm going to pick up the tab. Now, was it always that way? Um, I think it evolved quite a long time ago. Mm -hmm. um, there's a couple clients that have probably sent me so many referrals that I don't bother to send them that bill, you know, when I go, there's also totally. clients that I, that I go see on such a regular basis that I don't even stay in a hotel anymore. Now that may sound ridiculous, but there's a number of clients where they're like, just come over to the house. Like, I mean, it's but like awesome. clients we've worked with for a decade, yeah. you know, 17 years. I mean, wow. there's clients we've done 70 retained searches for, 
I mean, that's amazing. So Great. So there's a lot of this is is just long term relationship building. Chris, one of the things I like best about what you've been saying is um, really a being selective about who you're working with, and then making sure they're fully committed, and then making sure, and it's a mutual thing. Like you're investing in this relationship, and um, what's great about that is, you know, the way that the majority of recruiters I can see out there working, especially on the contingency side, but even sometimes on the retained side is they're not working with their ideal clients. They're working with clients who pay the bills or who they feel, well, it's better than nothing. You know, it's something to work on. And there's this, uh, it's a sunk cost fallacy where people think, well, we've already invested. We've been working on this thing for three weeks or however many long, however long. So I've got to keep going. And, and cause I've already spent all this time and which is, a, it's a logical fallacy because actually it doesn't make sense to waste more time when you, you know, uh, or throwing good money after bad or, or however you want to express it. But it's almost like they can't bear to let go of something that if they were being completely objective, they would realize is never going to, is a dead end or, or what have you. And that is a, that's a really expensive place to be when you're spending time on stuff that um, isn't going to pay up or maybe it does pay, but you don't like the client. You don't enjoy the relationship or whatever. To me, that also is a, is a waste of time and we should disengage yeah, the, whenever possible. I can give you a couple, well, I'll give you an example that is kind of recent actually. Um, during uh, 2019, I met with a client, a potential client, um, he flew in, uh, to our city. He is not from this part of the country. Um, met with me for about two hours in our conference room, ultimately chose not to hire us, hired another firm. Um, I checked on him. Like I said, I would, you know, how's it going? How's this, how'd the search end up? That kind of thing. And, uh, towards the end of the year during the holiday, uh, time, um, he basically responded to one of my checking emails and said, okay, I'll bite. I need this. I need this. I need this. And it was a laundry list of positions. And he was clearly frustrated when he wrote it, not at me, but just at his own situation. And so I kind of backed him off a little bit. And I just said, you know, well, why don't you enjoy the holidays and I'll be there to see you the first week of January. And we'll, we'll sort through the priorities of this. Cause there was an awful lot there. And so I went up there, spent three days in his office, um, and interviewed 11 different stakeholders uh, in the business. Um, and we started working through this, this list. And what became evident to us was that if you challenged him, he fired you. Hmm. Meaning on As his in, own team. An employee, you mean? Yeah. Okay. Just, I mean, he's the president of the company. And if you challenged him, you were gonna, you were gonna get let go, um, and so uh, we filled um, three roles for him, and two of them have been very successful. Uh, one of them was in a C-suite role and challenged him, and was it was like a reaction, you know, he just. You know, and so I had to sit the client down and this is no fun. 
along with the VP of HR of that organization and walk them through the perception, not just mine, but the, how the marketplace was look. I mean, in other words, you have good products, you have good services, you, you have a competitive uh, uh, value proposition to your customers, but you do not have a, a competitive value proposition, the workforce that, that is in your industry. Because when we talk to people, they're all aware when you start um, very quickly turning over C-suite level people, um, people start to ask questions as to why. And so sometimes the relationship, you know, it becomes, uh, I mean, it stayed constructive and we worked through it, but, but there was definitely um, some hesitation on our part once we got everything situated to, to go back, mm. you know? Um, yeah. And it's again, not, not a bad person, not, not a bad product, not a bad company. None of that, none of that, just um, a disposition that probably it would, it would make you a little concerned to move somebody into out of a role yes. and take them there knowing that, a switch can flip and absolutely. So, uh, so, so we, you know, we deal with people, right? So yeah. it's not widgets. It's not, we're not selling office furniture. We're dealing with people. And yeah. so if you think that, that you've seen it all, you never have, no. <laughs> it doesn't matter how many years you do it. Um, you see some of the same things and, you know, I, I, my staff and I, we, we sometimes laugh or somebody will say in a staffing, they'll be like, Chris, you got this, you had that one before, or, you know, we, you know, that, that happens because we're dealing with people, but um, most of the time, the way we just try to handle, I mean, I immediately had to get on an airplane and, and go sit down and just have a very thoughtful conversation. You know, it's a Chris, difficult conversation, but one you still got to have because you, you don't want your client to, to continue to hurt themselves. And they, and they, when we're 17 or 1800 miles away and can tell them what their competitors are feeling, about coming to work for them, they know it's true, right? I mean, we're we're too far away physically to know anything if we didn't really know. How how did he take it, and do you, and will and has he made adjustments? Um, hmm. uh, he he initially got warm. Mm-hmm. Initially, he got warm, which I sort of expected. Mm-hmm. Um, I stayed very low key about it, but saying the words that he needed to hear. Um, he, he, he got there. I mean, he was sitting next to his VP of HR um, and his chairman wasn't in the room. Right. So there was, he had, I mean, he, he didn't have a lot of choice. I mean, I guess he could have just, he, he made the right decisions. He made the right decisions, whether or not that'll be a long-term adjustment. Mm-hmm. I, it's too soon to tell. I mean, I'm giving you pretty current, yeah, um, it's, it's it's got it. So it's a it's in in progress right now. Yeah, and in six months, yeah. I can, I'll be able to answer that question because yeah. those candidates will all have feedback for us. Yeah, that's the other thing we do. We maintain relationships, um, and I think this is important. I will tell you, most recruiters, well, there's two things. This is mm-hmm. two things that the recruitment world should understand. Very important things. The first is every time you play somebody, that's a relationship 
that you should never, ever let go. Right. Right. That's first. Second is when you complete a search, all those people you didn't place that are in leadership opportunities somewhere. So if you're doing a manager of doesn't matter, manager of something, only one of those people got the job, but the other hundred or however many you talk to, they didn't. You should follow up with them, thank them for going through your process, whatever that process is, and continue to build a relationship with them because that's 99 marketing calls. And they're the easiest calls in the world to make because they've already engaged with your firm and you're thanking them for taking part in a process that they ultimately didn't conclude. Yeah. So it's not a, people are like, well, I'm a little afraid of the phone. I'm not sure, you know, how to go about that. These are simple calls and you should make them. And you don't have to be the person that did the search to call them because you could go in the 20 plus years we've been around, you could take any call list from any search and call the person up and say, you know what? We placed you in 2007 at ABC company. And I, 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 it was great. I was reviewing your background and it looks like you got promoted there two or three times. And then you left and went to their competitor X, Y, Z. I mean, you're just showing that you're paying attention, right? Mm -hmm. I just wanted to know how things are going at X, Y, Z and how that change took place. And is there anything I can do for you? Now, if they hang up on you, okay, that's, I guess, the worst thing that can happen, but probably the fact that you know so much about their background and are thanking them for working with your firm, even if it was 13 years ago, mm-hmm. again, it's just, they're just relationships you can maintain and you can rekindle and other people can rekindle relationships built by prior employees. All those things, love it. all those things can happen. And so, so I think a lot of times when I see phone anxiety or not sure what to do next or, People don't plan. Jordan is a huge planner. Like, so I bring up Jordan Rayboy here, but, um, but Jordan doesn't go into a day without a game plan of how he's going to go into that day. And that's hugely important because if you're not, I mean, if you just show up at your computer and go to your email, you're probably lost already. Chris, uh, that is a golden nugget right there. Thank you for for sharing. Even giving the the verbiage of how you would approach that conversation was uh, was beautiful. I uh, have a client who shared with me that they used a similar uh, approach recently. They had a, a candidate who um, they didn't place, but they kept in touch with and through that relationship within a few months had done a hundred thousand pounds worth of business. Um, and that was someone they didn't place, you know, those relationships and following up, uh, are, are, are critical. Those are so much easier than making a hundred cold calls, you know, it's, uh, but so thank you. Thank you for sharing that. That's brilliant. Chris, what do you think it takes to be truly excellent in this business? I think mental agility is super important. I think being able to assess quickly, but thoughtfully is super important. Um, I think that um, approaching this profession as a profession is really important. You know, if you're going to go be, um, I don't care if you're a surgeon or you're a headhunter and we can argue the differences, but I will, I will tell you that, 
the gift of this is that if you decide to be truly excellent at this or anything else, it takes practice. It takes time. It takes thoughtfulness. Um, it takes commitment. I think too many recruiters go from firm to firm instead of solving their problems at the firm they're at. Um, it's much easier to apparently to, you know, I'll do six months here, then six months there, or a year here, and then a year there, wh whatever the timeline is. But the truth is, build your brand, build, build, build your level of excellence, hold yourself to an incredibly high standard of how you handle your candidates, how you handle your clients, follow up with everybody. Um, doesn't mean you have to give them an hour. It just means you can't blow them off, you know, because one way feels very pejorative and the other, they may use you even if you didn't place them. Yes. I mean, it's absolutely. It's, so, so I think, you know, and then on the work-life balance part, um, some of that's probably driven by fear. So when you start your own business, you know, I worked for other com big companies. I always knew that I was going to get paid every two weeks and I knew that I was a top performer. So I always knew I was going to max out the bonus plan. You know, that wasn't even really a risk after like a year out of school. I kind of knew, you know, um, in this business, or any entrepreneurial business like this, um, you, you know, it, you, it's an eat what you kill business. Even if you're retained, you still have to go out and hunt and, yeah. and you have to have, um, you know, the markets go up, the markets go down. Um, you have to, you have to hold yourself to a standard of um, work. And there's probably years where, um, there's no years you're not working hard. I, I, don't, I mean, if you're going to be really successful in this business, that probably doesn't happen, but there's probably a few years where you work really hard and you make a little less money, but a little less money is still more than, I mean, if you're really working, it's probably more than most. I mean, it's a pretty lucrative career if, if you're solving problems in a thoughtful way, because that's really all we're doing, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you have clients who have companies who have goals and you're helping them assemble the high performance team that achieves those goals. That's it. That's what we do. Nobody should get confused. Like if they think about it in terms of why well, make placements, no, you don't because that's a transaction and that's not one that's going to get to repeat itself. Mm -hmm. If you go to a company and you give them their rock star shortstop, when they need a center fielder, they're calling you because you already understand the dynamics on the field for them. And they already know that you were thoughtful about the kind of shortstop or center fielder you're going to put on their team. So maybe people need to look at themselves a little bit more like the GM of a sports team and less like a salesperson and, and sales. There's nothing evil. Like when I people go, Oh, I don't want to, I don't want to talk about a sales job. Tell me what isn't. Tell me what isn't, uh, you know, it doesn't matter. I mean, the accountant's got to get a client. You know, the lawyer's got to get a client. Biggest mistake in the world is you get all these guys that go to law school, they get out and they're an associate. And at some point they need to be up for partner, but they don't have any clients because they didn't, they had no idea how to do client development for those eight years or nine years that they were an associate. I mean, it's the every, same. Every single person should know how to sell. I think that's no matter what you do. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a fundamental skill to success in every, every field. Hey, here's a quick question for my listeners today. 
did you catch my interview with Joel Slenning, where he talked about how he scaled his recruiting and staffing firm to $16 million before selling it? It's episode number 53, and if you've not already heard it, I recommend you check it out. The reason I bring it up is that I'm teaming up with Joel to create a mastermind group, especially for owners of seven-figure recruiting, staffing, and search firms who want to scale their business to eight figures. If that describes you, then listen closely, because we're offering a free taster session on September 28th, and you're invited to come along. To register, visit recruitmentcoach.com forward slash scale. Again, this is exclusively for owners of fast-growing recruitment companies who are already doing a million dollars in net fee income and want to build a business that generates cash flow without you working in the business so that you could sell it someday if you wanted to. Register now at recruitmentcoach.com forward slash scale. Hey, Chris, let me ask you something. At this stage in your career... What motivates you to keep driving as hard as you do? What is your why? What gets you out of bed in the morning? Everything I'm involved in is either about kids or about coaching, um, helping kids apply lessons that they learn to to life in a bigger way, right? So Mm -hmm. 2008, I started coaching uh, basketball. 2011, I became a varsity head coach. Um, 2015, I went to a state title game. Um, I, I mean, I'm, I love that sport, but mo- more about the lessons it teaches young men. Um, and that's because I coached boys as opposed yeah. to young women. I think they obviously can learn all the same lessons. Um, but, but yeah, I'm every chair. I mean, I sit on a board of a, of a nonprofit school that, uh, provide social and emotional learning and educational opportunities to kids in um, a very uh, financially and socially disadvantaged area here in Houston. Um, so I guess my theory is, is that if you help kids get a solid foundation and start, then they got a shot. And yes. if you, you know, adults got to make their those decisions and live with them and, you know, be responsible for them. But but you want to hope that you can at least help kids just, just get on that path. You know, I always talk with my own kids about, I'm not really a curb for you. I'm a guardrail. Like if you want to bang into the curb a little bit, that's okay. I need you to not go off the cliff. Right. So that's sort of how I, and it's really with my employees too. Like I, it's funny as we've been going through this and some of the examples I was giving you, um, there's a guy on my team who's been with me a year and 22 days, one year and 22 days as of today. He started January 6th, the last year. And he has gone through COVID year as a, as a rookie year. He yes. has had every weird thing you could possibly, I mean, not every, but way more than a one year guy should have. Um, <laughs> and he has busted his butt to learn our industry. And he called me yesterday and he's like, Chris, he goes, he, I, I had asked him, I'm like, are you happy? Like, are you like, is this something you're going to stick with? Cause he was a sales leader with a company for 16 years and came to work for us having never done search. And he goes, I've never loved a job more than I love this. And I'm like, Come wow. That's and awesome. he's like, he's like, no, he goes today. I closed two searches. I'm like, well, I know it's a good day today. And he said, he said, well, but the client, the candidates both called me and told me 
that I changed their whole situation. Mm-hmm. Like they were like, it was just great for their families. Like what I've done, what I'm doing isn't just, I sold a widget. What I did is that family is in a much better situation because of work we did together than, than they were a month ago. Oh, that's awesome. No, I mean, he totally is touched by the emotional side of that. So he's not just a capitalist, which is fine. Um, and I'm, and I'm very much the same. Like I'm mushy. If, if somebody sends me, um, like the, you know, the note, right. After a search, I'm, I mean, I'm a, I'm a mush. I hang them on the wall. I stick them. I have this whole shelving unit over here that has got letters from CFOs that worked with us. And when they retired, they sent us a letter thanking us for the work that we did for them or nice. um, people we placed that, you know, had very successful careers that might've started with us placing them in, you know, 2003 and, you know, now they're senior VPs of whatever. Um, I always think that's kind of interesting just to see the road. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> so, well, that's cool. Hey, can I ask you that's a question? Sure. How did you yeah. get into doing a podcast about search instead of doing search or do you do both or do you do search as well? No, no I don't. I, um, I was a rec- recruiter. My first recruiting job was 1997. Okay. And, uh, um, I wasn't very good at it to begin with, to, to be honest. Um, what happened is I was middle of the leaderboard. I didn't like that. I wanted to be, for the amount of effort I was putting in, I felt like it wasn't, it wasn't clicking for whatever reason. Um, so I hired my own coach, independent. I didn't tell my company I was doing that. I just you know, found someone who I thought could, could help me to increase my performance. I ended up doubling my billings in 90 days. Uh, I zoomed up towards the top of the leaderboard, was the number one of my team, got promoted, made enough money to, to pay for a house and a wedding and a new car. And, and, and that, um, this job is a whole lot more fun when, it's, when you're doing well, as you know, like it can be the worst or the best, right? Yep. Um, anyway, I, uh, that experience with the coach kind of planted a seed in my mind that uh, it was such a transformative experience, had a huge impact on me in, in every dimension, um, I realized that like, hey, maybe I could help other people to up-level their performance and to enjoy the job more and to get better results. And, um, and so a couple of years later, I decided that actually was my real purpose. I, I liked recruiting. I wasn't ever going to be the best recruiter, but uh, I was pretty good at it. I had some, some things to, to, to share, um, but my real kind of path was going to be more learning development. So I set up my own training and coaching company uh, in 2001. I've been doing it for almost 20 years now. Um, So who hires you? So, you know, when I first started, it was bigger recruiting firms who wanted me to come in and train their sales team. Like I got good at selling retainers. I worked for a contingency firm. So my first kind of product, if you like, was to say, hey, I can teach your contingency guys how to sell retained. And this was like 18, you know, 19 years ago. And, you know, mm-hmm. contingency firms like, yeah, sounds good. Come and, come and show us. And so I kind of got started doing that. Um, and then in 2008, and I, I had a few key clients that I did a lot of, they were just growing like crazy, you know, hiring recruiters. And so I was doing a lot of, you know, training rookies, onboarding them. I did some, you know, stuff with managers, like who are new to management and, and, and that sort of thing. And then in 2008, I lost 80% of my revenue overnight. 
um, oh, you know, companies who were, yeah, the, the, uh, the, the financial crisis. And then um, I realized, and also I had kind of grown, I, instead of when I first started, the guys who was training guys and girls were kind of just a little bit younger than me. And that age gap started getting bigger and bigger. And I realized as I matured and, and gained experience, I actually had more in common with the owners, uh, the directors. And um, I also had more affinity with the smaller firms because I, I you know, run a small virtual business out of my house. And so actually, my, um, I gravitated more towards the, the owners of solo and small boutique firms so nowadays, um, I primarily work with small firms. I have a few clients who are growth companies that I do advisory work for because it's interesting and it's, um, it's exciting. But my bread and butter is coaching, you know, people more like Jordan who are, you know, one or like they might have a small team, two or three, four people, but um, that's kind of primarily what I do. And so the podcasting, I've always sought out mentors, Chris, and tried to find people who I could learn from. And I thought, well, I'm doing this anyway. Why not record it and share it with people and then benefit more, you know, benefit more recruiters and, and reach a wider audience. And, and it, Does it help it's actually from a taken off. Perspective? Yeah, totally. It's become yeah. my number one source of inbound leads. Uh, people listen to the podcast and then they say, hey, I'd, I'd like your help. Um, so it's been fantastic from, from that point of view, for sure. And, and exceeded, like, I didn't really expect that. I thought I knew it'd be good for branding and everything else, but I didn't kind of originally set out for it to become a, a marketing thing, but it definitely has become that. Well, you're, you're very good at just walking someone through how to do this. Hey, so what time is it? So it's 425 here and uh, I'm in Edinburgh in Scotland. So um, Yeah. So the, uh, so Edinburgh's home. Yes, my wife is Scottish. I'm from Canada originally, um, but I've lived over here for 23 years. Do you love it? Yeah, it's a it's a great um, it's a great. I spot. have to I, ask. I'm sure you've been asked a million times. Are you a golfer? No, I can see that you are. But uh, have you been over here before? I haven't, but it's definitely going to happen. Oh um, yeah, Chris, we've been talking for longer than we originally planned on here. Thank you so much for doing this and sharing your knowledge to benefit other recruiters and other recruitment business owners. I really, really appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me. I, I've enjoyed it and it's, it's, uh, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to The Resilient Recruiter. If you've enjoyed the show, the best way you can show your support is to click that subscribe button. Thanks again and I'll see you next time.